Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. Oxford University is leading the race to a vaccine for the coronavirus. We talk to the head of the team. Next, navigating the sky with diamonds. GPS is useful for most of the time, but you may very well need something alongside it, and that's where something like this diamond-based system will be very useful. And we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the sewage. They can look at a community and say, wow, you know what? This population is not getting very much red meat in their diet. First up, a potential vaccine for COVID-19 has shown positive results in its most recent trial. The vaccine was developed by a team at the University of Oxford. It produced a strong immune response in the body, and it appears safe for people to take. The latest data from its early-stage human trial has just been released in The Lancet, a medical journal. The findings have raised hopes in the fight against COVID-19. But what happens next? To find out, our health policy editor, Natasha Loder, spoke to Professor Sarah Gilbert of Oxford's Jenner Institute. She leads the team that is creating the vaccine. We've just published a paper on the first 1,077 participants in the trial. Half of them had the new coronavirus vaccine and half of them had a meningitis vaccine in the control group. And what we're looking at is the people's responses to vaccination. We call it reactogenicity. And that's measuring things like, did they have a sore arm after vaccination? Did they have a headache or feel tired or feel feverish? And all of that is recorded for both groups. And then most importantly, we're measuring the immune responses to the vaccination. So we're looking at antibody responses and T-cell responses. And all of this is done in the first trial in healthy adults between the ages of 18 and 55 years. When you saw the results of your trial, what was your reaction? Were you pleased with the immune response it generated? Or is it difficult to tell whether that immune response is going to be good enough to create a working vaccine? We were very pleased with the immune responses, but on the other hand, they were also exactly as we'd expected, because we've been using this way of making vaccines, using the simian adenovirus vector for some years now, So we saw what we'd expected, which is really good news. We were getting the type and the magnitude of the immune response that we had expected to see based on what we'd done previously. 
The other question is whether that's enough to protect people against coronavirus, and nobody can answer that at the moment. We don't know what level of antibodies or what level of T-cells we need to protect people. So what we have done is looked at a way of increasing the immune responses that you get after the first dose of our vaccine by giving some people a second dose. And we were pleased to see that it did increase the antibody responses. They went up to a high level. It seems like a good strategy to use two doses of the vaccine in our efficacy trials so that we have the strongest immune response we can generate, and that's most likely to give us efficacy. Although in the long term, it may turn out that we can go back to using one dose. To what extent are you counting on T-cells to generate a sufficiently strong immune reaction to the virus? T-cells are really important in protection against viral infection. They work with the antibody response. So antibodies can neutralise the virus when it first enters the body and stop them from getting into cells where they can start to cause damage. But the cytotoxic T-cells can identify cells that have been infected and taken over by the virus and destroy them so that the virus can't spread in the body. And both of those types of immune response are part of natural immunity to viruses, and we would like to see both induced by vaccination. From what you've seen of the trial data so far, do you think the vaccine is looking like a safe one? Yes, certainly from what we've seen so far. We're using quite a high dose of this vaccine, so we do see people reacting to the vaccine. I think the most common symptom was fatigue, but they have a sore arm as well. And we found that by asking the volunteers to take paracetamol for 24 hours after vaccination, their symptoms are somewhat reduced. Many vaccines fail during testing. How confident would you say that your vaccine is going to actually work? Well, that all depends on the level of immune response that's needed to protect against coronavirus infection, which we don't know. We have tested this in a number of preclinical studies against a very high virus dose. Animals were immunised and then exposed to very large amounts of virus. And what we saw is that there was no pneumonia. Those animals would probably be much more representative of a young and healthy human than an older person with a less responsive immune system. And so a really important part of the trials is now testing the vaccine in groups of older adults who we know don't typically respond so well to vaccination. Could you give me your best guess as to sort of how long protection from the type of vaccine you're making might last? It looks like certainly in younger adults, we could expect a year's protection, but it all depends on the level of immune response that's needed. We don't expect to get lifelong protection from a single vaccination. We will have to monitor over time the decline in immune response and start to make decisions about when boosters should be given. So could you give me a sense of what happens next in terms of developing your vaccine? So at the moment, what we're doing is continuing with the trials in older people, giving them either one or two doses of the vaccine and then measuring their immune responses afterwards. And we have to wait for a month before we take the blood sample and measure the antibody and T-cell response after vaccination. And then if we're giving them a second dose, that's at least a month after the first dose. And then we need to wait another month to get the blood samples. So all of this does take a bit of time and that's ongoing at the moment. But in parallel to that, we're also vaccinating much larger numbers of people, 8,000 so far in the UK, on top of the 1,000 that were vaccinated in the phase one study. Half of them get the coronavirus vaccine and half of them get a control vaccine, which is in this case a vaccine against meningitis. And over time, when enough people have been infected, the statisticians will, as it's called, unblind the study. They'll look to see which 
groups those infections were falling into, and that will tell us if the vaccine's actually effective at preventing people from being infected. Do you think you'll be first to get to a regulator with results? Well, that's looking like a distinct possibility at the moment because we have the three phase three trials running. We haven't had any safety signals in the trial that mean that we can't carry on. We're seeing good immune responses and we have trials running currently in two countries where there's high rates of virus transmission. So it may well be that we're the first to have a result that we can present to the regulators. So Pfizer has said that they would hope to have a working vaccine by October. So that sort of implies that sort of timescale for you. Is that correct? Well, in order for anybody to have a vaccine that can be used on a wide scale, if that's what they mean, they will have to have an efficacy result in a phase three trial. So it will depend on where the phase three trials are happening. I don't think Pfizer have vaccinated very large numbers of people yet, and they're vaccinating with two doses, I believe, at 28 days apart. So, And you don't start counting cases until at least two weeks after the second dose. So I think they're optimistic in expecting a result by October, but um, it's possible if they do the trial in a country where there's a lot of virus transmission. I mean, we had heard some talk of, you know, maybe September for the Oxford vaccine. Would you say that that's not true or was that over-optimistic? The situation changes with virus transmission. So when we started the trials in the early part of the year, we were being told by the modellers that virus transmission in the UK was going to peak in May. And that if we had people vaccinated during April and the early part of May, we would be able to get an efficacy result very, very quickly. But of course, that's not what happened because it turned out there was more virus transmission in the UK in February and March than had initially been appreciated when there wasn't very much testing going on. And so we went into lockdown to reduce that. So that completely changed the timings for our plans to test the vaccine in the UK in terms of getting the efficacy result. The plans for the safety and imaginicity testing and testing in different age groups and in large numbers of people, that's all still going ahead. But we now don't expect to get an efficacy result out of the UK this year because virus transmission is so low, but we have started in other countries. Dr Gilbert, what does success look like? Success is having a safe and effective vaccine that will, at minimum, prevent severe disease in the people who are vaccinated and last for at least a year It could be better than that. It could prevent infection. But vaccines don't have to be 100% effective in all people to have a really big impact on public health. So we're not aiming for perfection. We're aiming for something that will prevent the pandemic from continuing to infect large numbers of people and cause hospitalisations and deaths. Sarah Gilbert, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Natasha. That's fascinating in terms of a vaccine. But of course, a vaccine is only one form of exit strategy for COVID-19. The other are drugs, a drug therapy. So what's the latest news about a possible treatment? We don't know very much. We know that a small biotech company called Synergen has notified regulators that it has completed a very small trial of 100 patients with an inhaled form of interferon. And this has had apparently quite a remarkable effect on the patients who were given it. They recovered much more quickly and fewer of them got sick. The difficulty with the precise numbers that have been put out is that because it's a small trial, we don't really know 
how accurate those figures are. And also, because they haven't released the full results in any sort of form, we don't really know how they ran their trial. It could be when you run a trial that you take on a certain type of patient who's less sick. All that said, an inhaled form of this drug interferon is something that we might expect to have an effect on COVID-19. So it is quite exciting, but it will need further trials. The other question is, is that, uh, you know, even if it does work, you know, you have to ask, well, how quickly can you manufacture an inhaled form of interferon? Um, But anyway, these are all questions that are further down the line. I think the most important thing to note is that it's, you know, another signal of a drug treatment that seems to be effective in COVID-19. Natasha Loader, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ken. And to read more about the search for a vaccine for COVID-19, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them, Ken sent you. When we return, navigation by dint of diamonds. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next up, most people can identify where they are in the world today via GPS, the global positioning system satellites that since the 1980s have hovered overhead to help navigation. But a new technology, using diamonds, might be a useful supplement to the satellites. It uses the magnetic fields in the Earth, but unlike the classic compass, it can create a fingerprint of sorts of where you are, not just the direction you're facing. This is a new technology that's being developed by the United States Air Force Research Laboratory. David Hambling writes for The Economist. In addition to the well-known core magnetic field, which is what causes a a compass needle to point north, there's also much fainter magnetic fields, which are called crustal fields. And these are caused by magnetism in the rocks beneath our feet. And they have a, a far more complex and intricate pattern. In fact, it's so complex and intricate that if you map it, you can immediately locate any particular point simply by its magnetic field signature. And that allows you to find where you are simply by using a a magnetometer. David, what is a magnetometer? A magnetometer is simply a device that measures magnetic field. Scientists use them all the time and they're getting more and more sophisticated and sensitive and they've now reached a point where they can actually distinguish between these crustal magnetic fields at different places. And how can diamonds help navigate? A lot of the existing magnetometers are big, delicate, expensive laboratory instruments. So in order to get one that's a more practical means that people can carry around with them, the Air Force Research Laboratory are working with a new type of magnetometer, which is based on a diamond with what's called a nitrogen vacancy in it. So it's a a diamond with two carbon atoms missing, one of which has been replaced by a nitrogen atom. And the play of fields around that is what allows them to use it as a magnetometer. Now, do these exist in the state of nature or are we making these diamonds? 
These are diamonds that are being uh, very subtly tweaked in order to uh, create these vacancies. They are only really tiny, you know, a thousandth of a carat. They're very tiny diamonds. But the important thing is that they do have these little flaws in them. Ultimately, they're hoping to make it about chip-sized, the whole apparatus. So that would mean it could be something that would uh, sit alongside the GPS chip in your mobile phone, for example. Great. And what is it about Earth that has these faint magnetic fields? Where is it coming from? It's coming from a variety of different types of rocks. Iron ores are the most obvious one, but lots of different rocks do get magnetised in in different ways by the Earth's magnetic field. And as they shift over time, they develop very complex patterns of folding and twisting and piling up. And that's what makes for this very distinctive magnetic landscape around us that can be picked up with a magnetometer. Now, I understand that this can work in theory, but how is it actually being used today And then tell me how it's going to be used tomorrow. In the last few years, the Air Force Research Laboratory have shown that it's not just theoretically possible, it's actually practically possible. In one example, they flew an aircraft for an hour-long flight and showed that it was possible to navigate within about 13 metres just using magnetic fields. So it shows that the the technique is viable and does give accuracy, which is uh, almost as good as GPS, except that you haven't got billions of dollars of uh, satellite constellation doing the guidance for you. Now, you also mentioned that it could be in a chip that would be in a mobile phone. How likely is that, that we'll all have our own sort of diamond-based chip to know where we are? Well, that looks to be somewhere in the future, but I'm old enough to remember the days before GPS. And uh, when it was first introduced, it was something that they just had, like in, in bombers and cruise missiles and things. And they talked about one day this is something that will come down from being a backpack size to something that everyone will have in their mobile phone. That sounded like science fiction at the time, but of course that's all come to pass. I think we're at a similar state with the diamond navigation system at the moment. It may look very futuristic, but it's certainly on its way. Now, last year on Babbage, we interviewed one of the developers of GPS, and he talked about how it was upgrading its technology so that it could actually be even more accurate. But as this technique improves, do you ever think that it will supersede GPS? I think GPS has a number of problems, one of which is the fact that jamming is becoming ever more frequent. Not only are people like the Russians and the Chinese selectively jamming GPS over wide areas, but anyone can now buy a cheap GPS jammer over the internet. And the problem with that kind of thing, it doesn't just affect you, it affects everyone around. So we've had incidents at airports and ports and other places where GPS jamming has thrown everything into chaos. And unfortunately, that's not something that even the latest GPS Block 3 upgrade will really resolve. So fundamentally, I think GPS is useful for most of the time, but you may very well need something alongside it. And that's where something like this diamond-based system will be very useful. And I think that's certainly what the US Air Force is hoping, because uh, they're very aware that in a wartime situation, GPS may not be available for one reason or another. So what do you think will be the navigational gold standard? Diamonds or satellites? I think there's a a lot of contenders in there and it might even be some other system. Ultimately, the satellites, when they work, 
are very, very good because in addition to the, the normal sort of GPS you use for finding your way around, there's a thing called differential GPS, which is used for surveying, and that can give accuracy down to literally a level of millimetres. So that is the absolute gold standard when it's working. The big problem with satellites is that because of jamming or because they've been hacked or because of a solar storm or some other reason, they stop working. And when that happens, you really need a good alternative. David Hambling, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And finally, diamonds aren't the only underground resource helping scientists better understand the world around them. A vast network of sewers lie underneath our towns and cities. And while sewage may not be as valuable as diamonds, that doesn't mean it has to go to waste. Researchers from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands and the University of Queensland in Australia believe that sewage can provide clues about the way people live. The researchers behind this work were really interested in what sewage could tell us about people. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent at The Economist. We run these censuses all the time to look at populations, and these researchers wanted to know if you rifled through a population's sewage, could it tell you the type of people that live in a community the same way you could find out about a community by going and knocking on doors and asking questions? Okay, so what did they do? They delved into the sewage of these facilities and they took the samples and they started looking for things they knew from past work told them about a population. For example, they knew that places that had a history of crime tended to have things like amphetamines in the water because, well, you know, amphetamines are illegal and they knew those two things would be attached. Similarly, they suspected that things like nicotine from tobacco would be common in rural and poorer neighborhoods. And they guessed that things like caffeine would be more commonly consumed in highly educated urban areas where everyone's running off of caffeine 24-7. They looked at six legal drugs, a bunch of illegal drugs, a bunch of other opioids, antidepressants, psychotics, and other biomarkers that you find in diet like enterolactone, which is found in fiber from a healthy diet. And they looked at all that stuff and tried to get an image of what that population was like. Okay, so jolly interesting, but why did they do this? Censuses are expensive to run. The last one that was run in the United States cost $13 billion. That's because you need to pay people to sit on the phone and call folks and hope they don't hang up on you. And you also have to ask folks to go and knock on doors to collect information about the people who live there. This is expensive. Going and collecting a sample from a sewage facility is comparatively cheap. So they were wondering whether or not it might be possible to use sewage samples to, at the very least, supplement the stuff that's being done by censuses so you don't have to run them as often. And they did. And it worked. It worked. They were able to identify a bunch of criteria that, in total, kind of give you a fingerprint of a population. They collected their wastewater at exactly the same time that Australia was conducting its census in 2016. Just as they were collecting wastewater from different communities around Australia, they collected census information that the Australian government was collecting from those same communities. So they were able to build up a database to tell them which compounds indicate 
what types of socioeconomics you have in a community. They were able to see, for example, that certain combinations of drugs could tell them roughly how many people in a population had a high school diploma, or roughly how many people in a population had cars or were single parents. And that's because certain combinations of Everything from vitamin B, which tells you about dark leafy greens in your diet, to amphetamines give you this image of what a community is like that really rather nicely matches to census data. It brings up the question of other things that they can learn. Illegal activity, milk consumption, good diet versus bad diet. Have they been able to figure out what sort of things might work public policy-wise in these communities? They're not actually looking to build up public policy, but what they can do is they can look at a community and say, wow, you know what? This population is not getting very much red meat in their diet, or they're not getting many whole grains or not many dark leafy greens. And you could use that as a government to say, hey, this population really needs to think about diet more carefully. Let's put out some adverts to help people to become aware or set up a campaign to increase awareness. Similarly, you could look at a population and say, wow, there is a lot of nicotine in this sewer water. We really should target this area with an education program to help people to realize that maybe they should quit smoking or they do realize it, but they need help. So let's aim our national health service to better target these neighborhoods. Similarly, you could tell police, hey, folks, there are an awful lot of amphetamines in this water. Let's, uh, let's focus on this neighborhood. Now, it need not stop simply with, say, drug use. You could imagine doing this and looking at the prevalence of COVID-19. And people are. There are a number of experiments that have come out just in the past couple of months demonstrating that you can see whether or not a population is suffering from COVID-19 in, in a significant way without even sampling the people directly. Do you think this will always be a uh, supplement to the census, or could this actually replace the traditional census? Dr. Samanipur, the lead researcher out of the University of Amsterdam on this, has been very cautious in saying, we are supplementing the census. We are not trying to replace it. With that said, I can see the potential to use this kind of information to certainly supplement it in the immediate future and in the long term... I could certainly see technology like this almost making the census obsolete. Uh, the researchers would disagree with me on that front, but I think technology would move in that direction eventually. Matt Kaplan, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.